What is up, podcast listener? This is Miguel. I'm just stopping in before this great episode today to let you know that Wednesday, August 11th at noon, Wednesday, August 11th at noon, a new song drops, Move On. Uh, and I would love for you to pre-save that. I got the pre-save link in the notes, so make sure you go to the notes of the podcast, click on there, pre-save, and get things ready for that. You can also go to any of my social media sites, at Just the Miguel, at Just the Miguel, and pre-save on there as well. Um, and then I, I want to thank you uh, for listening to I Need a Light. It's been out for about two weeks. Thanks for sharing it. Thanks for pushing it out. Uh, if you want to share it again, if you want to listen to it again, uh, I would love for you to do that. So make sure you go to my website, justthemiguel.com, or go to, again, any of the social media sites on there as well, and the links are there uh, for that. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Let's jump into today's episode. What is up? I am Miguel Antonio, and this is the Live and Create podcast. It's where I interview artists and entrepreneurs about what it means to live a great life and create great things. And on today's podcast, we have author Kayla Ankrum. Kayla Ankrum is the author of the award-winning thriller The Wicker King, the interstellar lesbian romance The Weight of the Stars, and the Peter Pan thriller Darling Kay. She is a Chicago native passionate about diversity and representation in young adult fiction. She currently writes most of her work in the lush gardens of the Chicago Art Institute. In this episode, she shares her story of finding the love for writing and how she eventually developed that into her now full-time career as an author. And Kayla also unpacks how she incorporates her diverse experiences into her stories in the hopes that others will find themselves in some hope in the character she creates. She also offers some great advice to the working artists on how to pick the right side hustle that won't get in the way of your craft. It's a great episode. I hope you enjoy. The Live and Create Podcast. There, there is so many places we could go, but the, the real important place I want to start is what the hell is yellow watermelon? Because I'm just so <laughs> curious. <laughs> Where did you find this? And it doesn't really taste like regular watermelon. That's what that's what I want to know. <laughs> it does. Um, for those of you who don't follow me on Twitter, I um, posted recently about purchasing a yellow watermelon from my local grocery store and thinking about mixing it with pineapple and serving it to everyone because it basically looks exactly the same. But um, so in Chicago, we actually have like a significantly um, different amount of diversity of produce in our smaller family owned grocery stores. So like at Jewel, you might not be able to find something like a kumquat, but you know, at your local Mexican grocery store, we got it all. So, <laughs> so the one that's closest to me is a, actually it's an Eastern European grocery store. I think it might be owned by like Romanians or something. And periodically they'll buy like a small amount of a really weird thing just to see if it will sell or maybe it's on on sale and this time they got yellow watermelon and it is yellow like like pineapple like it's it really did your yellow. picture it looked just like pineapple i was like wow i've never seen this <laughs> yeah they, honestly it tastes just like regular watermelon i know there's some other varieties that are like sweeter or more watery but this one's just straight you know up and down regular watermelon <laughs> now have you had a chance to try it at a party yet not yet one day all right, you you have to live tweet that and just maybe get some pictures of people's reactions, which would be pretty <laughs> awesome. I love it. Now that where where are you from? Where do you live? Um, I live in Chicago. 
In Chicago. Exactly. Okay. That's, as you explain all these different stores, I'm in Kansas City, so in the Midwest. We have a few, uh, like if you go downtown Kansas City, we have a few uh, local kind of grocers, but it sounded like you were in a place with uh, a plethora of things to choose from, which is, I love Chicago. It's such a great city. That and New York City. My family is originally, uh, well, originally from Puerto Rico, but uh, by way of Puerto Rico became, you know, New Yorkers, and they're all in Brooklyn now. <laughs> but <laughs> So you, you started writing at 12, right? Like writing your your first novel, mm-hmm. if I'm right. Now, for you though, was it earlier that you started shaping characters and stories in your head? Like, was that something even as like a little girl you could you started seeing these things come to life in your mind? Honestly, I've always been like imaginative. I have ADHD, so like when everyone else is doing math, I was just sitting there just staring into the distance. <laughs> <laughs> Long term, it paid off for you, right? Yes, it does. Actually, when I go on school visits, I'm like, I got horrible grades. And all the kids laugh. And I'm like, do your schoolwork. <laughs> <laughs> you better do your schoolwork. Wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the reason that I actually started writing books is I um, I was actually very much involved in other kinds of arts. I was a sculptor. I would do um, like ceramic sculpture and like figure design and charcoal and paint. And then when I was in seventh grade, actually in Chicago, we have like a bunch of like city funded art programs and stuff. So if you're talented, you can go off and do it. Somebody else will pay for your supplies. So, so anyway, um, when I was 12, um, I think I was in seventh grade. Uh, I read this book called A Wrinkle in Time. Okay. And, you know, it, it was good. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. But at that moment, I was like, you know what, this is how I want to communicate with the world. I really like that this person who had this idea um, and these like ethics that they had, she's a very Christian person. And she wanted to teach like the importance of like love and family and not bullying people and caring for each other and finding found family. And she was like, the best way to be able to teach this is through this imaginary world that I created. Um, that'll be easy for kids to understand and that they'll get the like but, you know, center of those, those values and not be right. something where you're like, you have to love your mom and dad and actually show what parental love means to a child and to a parent. And I was like, give a real so picture cool. of it. Yeah. So, you know, that's when I started kind of like practicing writing. That's awesome. So that's cool that it's like, you knew you had this creative outlet just exploring and, and then here's this moment uh, that, mm-hmm. that propelled you. Now, what, what did it look like at 12? to say, I'm going to sit down and start writing a novel. I, I'm just curious for you. What, how did that, how did that start for you? So I was mostly interested in fantasy at first because I like to read fantasy and I hadn't really reached that point where I was like, I can write different things than what I like to read. But um, I was super into writing like school fantasy novels. And I think I was like 12, 13 when I finished my first one. And if anybody is cognizant of this timeline that was around when twilight first came out so everybody was doing like vampire you know whatever i was doing this like really interesting like demon werewolf fantasy thing um and i would like force all my classmates to like read my stuff (laughs) (laughs) well and i was team jacob so i could i could support focusing more on the werewolves to be honest so i'm (laughs) I'm in that i'm with you so your classmates are starting to read it and are they're they're connecting with it then at that point I, I imagine. 
Yeah, I mean, like, it wasn't very good. Like, I, I've reread oh, okay. what I wrote back then. Like, I was not that super talented at 12. Like, I was just a regular 12-year-old. <laughs> right. You know, there's those Beethovens in the world who are writing their symphonies at four. But, like, in general, right? Uh, Ira Glass, he has a great quote. I'll mess it up, but the gist of it, it's like, we, we start out, you know, having this thing that we know. We see it, and we just keep moving forward. And eventually, it begins to form and shape into the original thing, maybe years down the road. But, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely that's that's exactly what I would describe this being like. Um, I I got uh, signed with my agency when I was really young. I think I was twenty two or something. So I had just just slid out of college. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are like, and oh. that was Amy, right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, Amy Tipton. Okay. Um, she's no longer an, an agent right now. She's an editor now. But um, back then, you know, everyone was like, oh, my God, you must be so talented. You just wrote this book and it just fit. No, 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 no. I've been writing books for like almost a decade. <laughs> Ten years hard labor. <laughs> doing That's zero a, the overnight, s- overnight sensations are always 10 years in the making. That's when I see like bands that are up there that I've been following since they started and people are asking them like, what's it like, you know, to be really getting started? And they're like, getting started, bro. I've been doing this for like 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> It's but 22 signed, signed to an agent, though. I mean, that to me, that is still very impressive. Like you put in, you already had that time in. Uh, now, that first book, was it kind of just like eyes wide open learning all these crazy different things? Like, I don't know. What, what was that experience like getting an agent and really pushing your first book at 22? Well, a part of spending like a decade doing um research and like learning about how to write I, like i've never written short stories I've only written novels um you learn a lot about like novel formatting and like story formatting and just like media you know everybody's watched a movie and been like that would be better as a book or read a book and be like that would be so cool as a movie or played a video game and been like mm, i feel like this would be better you know so there are different stories that like lend themselves to different types of media so from like a academic perspective my studying of my craft for this long kind of gave me a little bit of a understanding of how to design a story more than it was to you know be creative and write so I I very much am somebody who writes um kind of like an architect like I make plans and then I write what my plan I don't, you know, sit there and just kind of creatively, you know, do anything like that. So when I met um, Amy, I was writing this book that was in a um, non-linear format. And she wanted me to take the entire book and place it in linear format. So I like wrote my book, rearranged it into linear format and then sent it back to her. (laughs) Wow. You know, (laughs) she was impressed that I was able to do that in like a week or something. And she's like, you know what? You seem professional. Let's I have a hard enough time moving parts of songs around, which only lasts about three minutes and 40 seconds. And you did this with a whole novel. Just listening to you talk about that. I've never read a book, but I can only imagine how how tough of a thing that would be, especially as you wrote the story. Yeah. I mean, like when I was um, I graduated from college or I went to college for fashion design and left with an English degree. And when I was like doing my English degree really, really fast in the last two years of my um, college experience, I really wanted to go to graduate school because I wanted to do um, like media studies and analysis. And I wanted to have a book published so it would be easier for me to get a fellowship. So, Oh, the video locked up. If you can hear me. I'm not sure if you hear me or not. Let's see if it catches up. Uh Uh-oh. 
Oh. Am I back? I, I think you're back. There you okay. go. Yeah, I think you were, it cut out right as you were talking about writing a book that you felt would be good enough to get you a fellowship. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. So I really, I really just wanted to kind of like see if I could, you know, get into graduate school and not have to pay for it because I had no money because I graduated in 2013 and that was like the tail end of the, the Great Recession. So, you know, when I, when I, when I got signed and I got paid for that, um, it really just kind of like changed the trajectory of where I wanted to go with my career. And from that point forward, any job that I had was kind of like, you know, less of a job, less of a career, more of a job. Right. Um, now here I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know you, you talked about, I think it was on your website talking about having like, you're not a full-time author. I, it sounds like you definitely approach it in that perspective, but you also have another career that a job that you love, uh, as well. And what, could you talk a little bit about what that, what that's like for you as you pursue being an author, but then also pursuing this other job that you also love and don't want to escape? Cause, and the reason I ask is a lot of artists I meet tend to like this thing I'm doing, I just want to get rid of it, <laughs> but it sounds like you, you actually enjoy both sides of it. Um, I, I, gen I genuinely did. I think, um, Usually the way I would approach it is I would find a job that had like three critical things. One, it was not so difficult that I wouldn't be exhausted by the time that I got home because I had to do more work at home. Mm. Two, that I was able to be kind of like in control of the amount of work that I had. So it wouldn't be a quality job. It would be a quantity job. So, you know, call center -y type stuff. And three, that I have a manager that A, knows that I'm an author and understands that I am also doing that as like a part of my career. Right. And I've done pretty well with that. I worked in logistics. I worked in, you know, healthcare. I've done call center stuff. Um, but most recently I began working at a uh, law firm and it was one of the most interesting experiences um, I've had with, you know, doing work that I actually like. Um, like a lot of companies during the pandemic, things kind of fell apart a little bit, just, you know, with management, with making sure that like things were going in a way that like made it so that the employees kind of, you know, were available to do work and stuff like that. So I no longer work there. I just kind of wanted to step back and focus mostly on my, my actual writing, but it was a wonderful opportunity. Um, I really, the company is doing like I'm, I'm in love with their like mission still after, you know, after leaving voluntarily, um, they are a company that is specifically going after, um, like predatory businesses. So they're, they were suing Uber, they were suing Lyft for like stealing people's tips, underpaying, you know, just doing that sort of stuff. So when you work for a company where you actually believe in their mission, not like, you know, like, I want to work here. I believe in the mission. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. Yeah, I yes, so you know? am sold out for it. It's because exactly. paycheck's coming. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, when, when he would come to us and be like, okay, well, you know, Big Pharma created this like, you know, medical implant that gave all these people all these horrible side effects and we need to like call them and make sure that they're, you know, okay, but also to see if they want to get any money from this company for doing that to them. Like, yeah, the answer is yes. Like, I might do that for free. <laughs> right. You know? So I think that that's probably the main um reason why I enjoyed that work so much. But, you know, with the pandemic, things are changing a lot. There are significantly more opportunities opening up um, just for, you know, side job writing things, for IP writing things. So I kind of just slid deeper into that. And now it's my nice. whole time. Oh, that is. Okay. So I'm a little, I was a little bit behind on that, but 
that that's awesome that's super awesome um and but i love that you had those three criteria like you really thought out like what is the kind of jobs i want as you built this career and i think uh some of the artists who might be listening that that could be such a helpful helpful thing to them because it's it's a reality like my wife and i we do a commercial cleaning business at night together uh but that's the thing it's like it 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 provides us incredible flexibility it it brings in enough to where and it's cleaning it's almost like once you know it it's kind of a mindless thing so i have the energy and the space uh during the day to write or do these interviews those kind of things that's that's awesome i I love that you had that specific criteria and kept moving towards that. Now for you, and like I hear the activism piece that you loved about that company. Um, And a friend of mine was talking about, we were talking about like activism and making a difference in the world. And like there's, there's seasons in my life where I feel like activism was almost just like arguing with everyone that I could (laughs) and like losing all of my friends and family. Um, But he, he had this really like great perspective of, like, what does it look like to pour it into my work? What does it look like to pour it into uh, what my money is doing uh, instead of like my bullhorn uh, out, you know, in public or on social media? And what I love about what you're doing, it seems like in your stories, you're weaving this, this, this like representation that I think is so valuable and so huge. And uh, what inspires you to make sure that you're representing so many different uh, lifestyles and and so many different kinds of people within your within your work. Um, I think it's this thing. It's going to sound so obvious when I say it, but it's important for authors and people who create content in the way that in the industry that I do to remember that we're writing for children. Um, it's my primary focus. I think about it for every single product I've ever worked on. You know, when you're creating media for children, you have to think about the fact that the media could impact people in ways that will stretch long, you know, beyond you. And when I was younger, I remember reading certain books and having certain things about my personality change or certain things about my ethics change or certain things about, you know, my feelings about myself change. And knowing that, you know, you can have that sort of dynamic effect on a generation that's incoming is a huge responsibility. And it's like a huge um, kind of like an ethical quandary that you have to be continually on top of. So when I design my books in regards to the diversity specifically, I want to reflect a world that is not like diverse or, you know, representational. I want to reflect the reality of what was around me when I was going on, you know, in my own teen experience. And I grew up in like a big city. So I had lots of different types of people with lots of different types of families and lots of different backgrounds and lots of different economic backgrounds surrounding me. And I want to make sure that that is, if not in the forefront, but absolutely in the periphery of every single one of my books. And then when it comes to like actual content, like the story, what's going on? I, I am a contemporary fiction writer, but I try my best to make my my books feel like genre fiction, to feel like thrillers, to feel like sci-fi, to feel like, you know, horror. But I, I want to make sure that everything that is happening in my novels can happen in real life, just as like a feature of my work. So I recently had a book come out called Darling. It's a Peter Pan um, novel. And I worked very, very hard to create an environment where it feels like there is magic in the story, but it's simply contemporary. Nothing magical ever happens. 
Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Now, thank you. Now I write about uh, mental health and trauma uh, a lot because I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of teenagers and all my books are for kind of older teenagers, um, age like 15 to 21. Um, I want to make sure that the representation is accurate to the life experience of people who are actually suffering certain things. So aside from just doing regular research, I do a lot of academic research. Um, for my very first book, when I was 22, 23, I spent like three or four months doing research on like childhood neglect, um, the effects of doing certain things within the home, you know, just making sure that my portrayal of that was accurate. Um, the book is set in the early 2000s. I did research on the state of like mental health care during that era. There were a lot of like budget cuts. So what was the overall effect of that? Um, the book is about uh, a kid who has a hallucinatory disorder and then another kid who's suffering from the early like onset of um, borderline personality dis- disorder. So I worked really hard to research what the portrayal of that should be and maintained it at the cost of the ending of the story seeming too easy to some people. I wanted the recovery of the specific, you know, issue that the main character had um, or the main character's love interest had um, to be textbook accurate. So I did interviews Hmm. with doctors. (laughs) It's important for me to make sure that like that work is as accurate as possible because these are children who could by the grace of God, <laughs> not have to deal with this, but like could have to deal with this. And I want them to be able to, if they read my work, to know what it is that's going on, to be able to, you know, with that. Now, is your hope that there will be some people who will see themselves in it? Or is it is your hope that some people will just be exposed to things that maybe they they have not seen in their whole life? Um, I, while I value the opportunity to expose people who have not experienced certain things to things within my work. It is more of a priority to me to create content that makes children who have no one to make them feel comfortable and seen to have that work carry them through. Um, there is in the like LGBT community, you know, we talk a lot about found family. We talk a lot about, you know, community support and stuff like that. And that's absolutely like the bedrock of survival for a lot of people. And, you know, America, most of my work is distributed in America, but I have a lot of international stuff as well, but for America specifically, it's a very big place. And a lot of people don't live in cities and a lot of people don't live in, you know, communities for which they can see themselves, you know, in others around them. And, you know, they're mostly getting their representation from movies and TV and books and stuff like that. And it's important for, you know, them to see themselves somewhere. And I think that, you know, in 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 the ways that TV and, and movies are different, I feel like books are feel a lot more personal when you're consuming them as like a form of media. Um, it really feels like you are either standing beside the characters or being told the story on a one-on-one basis from you to the author and having that privacy while experiencing being seen and experiencing, you know, watching people share feelings that you've, you've felt that you don't feel like you can share with other people is significantly more intimate than when you are, you know, seeing yourself on television or seeing yourself in movies, even though I'm a huge proponent of movies, television, and video games. Um, (laughs) Like, I'll go to, I don't want to go, discount that, but, but well, in the level of detail, that's, that's in a book it's, typically. It's too. just a different, like, it's a different consumption experience. And there are absolutely dynamic 
importance to, you know, TV and movie representation and what that means to the general populace, seeing a person who is a certain way and like how that can even shift political ideology. Like it's, it's very important. And especially like in, in things like video games where, you know, the audience that consumes it might have more exposure to one thing over another, having a game that like has characters and character designs in a certain way is really important. But, you know, I, I write books, so I got to talk about <laughs> Well, and so I, I think what's amazing about fiction too is in a sense, sometimes I feel like, and, and it's like, sometimes I feel like as I'm, I'm reading, I'm working with the author where it's like they're describing it, but then I'm also creating those pictures within my yeah. mind and that experience. So where movies just give it to you, which I love movies so much as well, but I think there's an extra power in reading that it's like, yeah, you almost become part of the story, um, especially if you connect with the character, uh, which obviously is like your goal to bring people into that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I do think since we're on the topic of movies and books, um, I actually am mostly inspired by films. Um, I read a lot, but like, I, I don't really read what I write. I read a lot of like middle grade novels, like books for kids. <laughs> and I read like nonfiction and then like occasionally I'll read like fantasy or something, but I just write like contemporary young adult. So a lot of the ideas that I have are from movies. So my formatting and the way that my books are kind of designed in regards to like the way your emotions are supposed to play out for the text is way more similar to films than it is to books. Okay. Um, and a feature of that, that a lot of people either like or complain about on my work is that it feels like, in the same way that watching a movie, you, you are still in your own body watching what's happening through like a shadow box. Reading my work feels like you are not standing beside the characters, but like you're looking into something, watching them do stuff and being unable to like affect or impact that in any way. So there's this That's like awesome. difference between the reader and my work just because of... You. <laughs> just because where it's being inspired for you. Uh, what are some of the movies that what are, what are the ones that inspire you the most? Or is it just such a long list? No, it's just such a long list. It's just like, <laughs> I'll put it this way. People will ask me like other interviews last me like, Oh, what books are you reading? Like what books are you? And I'm just blank slate. <laughs> just completely like, blank. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but I find it interesting talking to all these different kind of artists. A lot of people find inspiration out of their own world where like mine's still in music, but I tend to listen. I write more like pop rock or Americana type stuff. And, but I listen primarily to rap like, and rap and like heavy metal. Like, so I'm either listening to J Cole or tool but then I come out with my acoustic guitar playing like this little Americana tune. I don't know why, but it's like, that's where my heart gravitates when I'm wanting to just enjoy and listen. And then when I create, it just comes out a whole different way. So that's cool <laughs> that you're, you're in two different mediums, uh, mm -hmm. similar, but, but being inspired and bringing that in with a different perspective, which I think is awesome. Yeah. But, um, so you had talked about, uh, having ADHD and, I, there was something you had talked about on Twitter that I wasn't really familiar with. It was a term, it's called masking. And I was just curious about that, if if you can unpack what that is and, and what that looks like. Because I'm fairly, yeah, fairly ignorant to that term. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, people with ADHD and autism, because um, they do share a decent amount of uh, characteristics. Um, periodically, we will do this thing where 
we, we are the way that we are and the way that we like express ourselves and the way that we, you know, handle certain social interactions and stuff like that. Um, but we get really, really good at performing, not that kind of like, it's not like, Oh, you're not being yourself or anything like that. Like it, it, it is, you know, you're being yourself, but like you might dial down on certain things or like turn certain things up. Like, for example, I'm not super into eye contact, but I used to be really good at forcing it. Like it's, okay, it feels sure. like uncomfortable to me, kind of like somebody standing way too close to you. Like you can deal with it, but like, you know, it just feels <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, or doing like a thing where you just kind of like talk a whole bunch about one thing that you're really into. I like mm-hmm. kind of learned to stem that a bit. It's worse now, <laughs> as you're probably noticing, but um, <laughs> the last year I was really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> you're like COVID. I didn't have to live with it. I didn't have to do any of that. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't leave your house. Nobody's really forcing you to do anything really. So you become more yourself when you are in isolation and, you know, because I work in the entertainment industry and people don't really think of authors as people who work in the entertainment industry, but we do. Mm-hmm. Um, being charming is kind of like a benefit. Not everybody has or does that, but once you are somebody who people are like, Oh, that person's charming. I can invite them here or I can put them over there or I can <laughs> have them do this thing and whatever. But like, if you stop being able to do that in some way, it's damaging. In, in this industry yeah it's like so much yeah. is built off of the networking and the the late night parties all these kind of things which we didn't have to do for a whole year but yeah no <laughs> i feel you it's like and i i not in the level that you are but i i can get sorry i'm like locking up on my words uh, i've been having like <laughs> brain fog stuff for a few days but <laughs> um i think i was telling you i i had a i went to a doctor yesterday like blood sugar stuff and so it's my it's weird, but anyways, <laughs> trying to figure all that out. Um, what was I talking about? I completely blanked. Oh, that's um, okay. Um, oh, we were talking about networking and going there where on tour, I was constantly going, 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 but I, all my guys saw where it's like, I would shut down. Like mm-hmm. I'm like my entire personality. It's like, I would just go and yeah. they're like, we got to get them out of here. Cause <laughs> it, it's like, <laughs> you can't really be that guy, you know, networking and doing those things. But on an extra level, if you're dealing with ADHD or you're dealing with um, autism, I could imagine how much harder. Now, do you feel, when you look at it, do you feel like it's a tool or do you feel like it's a thing that you wish you didn't have to do? I feel like it's a tool. Or both. <laughs> yeah, it's, tool. it's definitely a tool. It's like, you know, I could be myself at home and I could do whatever I want with the people, you know, love me. But, you know, when it's almost like learning how to give a speech in front mm-hmm. of a large group of people. You know, like you, the charisma with which you must keep their attention is absolutely a learned skill and not feeling nervous in front of that many people or being able to transform your nervousness into energy is a learned skill. (laughs) You you don't need to do that when you're hanging out with your friends at a bar, but like, you know, (laughs) it's something that I consider in that same section. And for me, like as a person with ADHD, a lot of people, they don't really under understand, you know, what I'm describing, but it's almost as if instead of having like a regular conversation with regular people, it's everybody is standing at least two feet way too close to you, talking very, very loudly and staring into your eyes without blinking for the entire time. Like how <laughs> would you navigate? And then you're like, okay, so if I clench my fists really hard, I could do the eye contact thing. And if I just kind of lean back just a little bit, maybe I could deal with them being way too close to me. And then 
like, you know, I can get used to talking to them and it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I mean, you just get used to it. And then all of a sudden it doesn't really bother you as much as they're doing that to you. But then if you get some time and you're hanging out with people who are like, okay, normal distance away. Okay. They're not staring at you and not blinking like some sort of robot. You're like, ah, yes, cool. This is much better. And then all of a sudden you go back to the other. That's what it's like. I got you. That, that paints a great picture for it. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Now over that year, over this past year, COVID, you know, a lot of us in some form of isolation sound like that was actually a positive thing where you didn't have to utilize that tool as much. Uh, were there anything, was there anything that popped out for you internally as you were reflecting? Like, here's a lesson about myself I saw that I didn't see as I was like doing all the hustling and doing all the things. Um, I think when you were in constant exposure to other people, your perception of yourself is in some ways aligned with the expectations of the others moving around you. Um, And I don't mean that in like a negative way. I just mean that in like a, while you're not thinking about it, you're doing and thinking and being certain ways because you are performing a version of the self, which is fine. Everybody does it. Doesn't, it's not just, you know, neuroatypical people, just everybody does it. Um, And I found that a lot of people, not just myself, started questioning certain things about their personality, about whether or not it is something that is inherently them or something that they happen to be performing for a very, very, very long time. So a lot of people, you know, realize that their sexual orientation wasn't what they thought it was. A lot of people realize that, you know, they might not like dressing a certain way that they've been dressing their whole life. They want to wear something else (laughs) or, you know, they have been talking a certain way and they're like, I no longer want to do that. Like, you know, how was I doing that? <laughs> yeah. And like, it wasn't causing you stress or duress before, but now that you don't have to do it, like everything mm. is different now, you know? Um, and like for a really simple one for people who aren't questioning a lot of stuff, like a lot of people, you know, went into quarantine after wearing a bra for like 35 years and they took it off and they didn't really have to put it back on because they didn't have to leave the house. And now they're like back is doing right. something completely different. They're huh. breathing, their lungs is like more because there's no pressure. Like it's, it's like that. So for me, it very much was the way that I dress changed. And then the way that I understood myself as somebody who was neurotypical. Like I I thought that I was kind of more high functioning than I actually was in real life. Um, But now that like all that stuff has kind of been stripped away, I do have some like major things that are handicapping my ability to do life basically. Like I I realized that I have a significant memory. My memory is dangerously bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And like, you know, you wouldn't think that matters, but like when people send you interview requests or, you know, appointments right. and stuff like that, like, mm, you know, <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know, it didn't make it on the calendar. I'm sorry. It's not there. <laughs> yeah. So I think now as we're making our way back into society and we're, you know, reintroducing ourselves into being a member of a, you know, in-person community, um, people are going to have to come to terms with whether or not certain things they thought were mandatory are actually optional and whether that's a choice that they want to make. And that's huge. Like seeing that where I, I went through similar processes. I can relate in that regard. We're questioning a lot of things that couldn't function. Part of parts of my personality that I thought were there that couldn't function in, in lockdown essentially. And one of the big ones for me is just, I'm a go, go, go kind of 
hard driving person. And I spent a whole year just questioning whether that really was me, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. like you said, where you learn to perform these things for other people, where it's like, as things are open back up, it's like, I'm seeing, well, it's like, yeah, I actually am happier when I'm doing, you know, multiple things and building things. But I saw that it be, I still, it's like, I ramped it to another level that didn't need to be where it's like, how do I just keep it right here? You know, how to keep it in fourth gear instead of going all the way to the other one. And I talking to a lot of artists, they, they see those things. Are there, are there any tools for you? Uh, like for you, like you recognizing, like with the memory thing, were there any tools that you're trying to build into? Are you just kind of like, Hey, this is me. And I know this is what I'm dealing with as you go back into life. Um, yes, actually, when I was very young, when I was uh, diagnosed with ADHD, I think it was like 11, maybe 10 or something. Um, I was immediately shunted into a meeting with a behavior, with a, um, a behavioral therapist who was just some lady who was like, okay, you clearly have a problem. All right. What you need to do is do things that make having that problem not as bad. And I was like, that sounds reasonable. So <laughs> like she taught me. Yeah, you know, she taught me how to see that I was doing something that wasn't working and to, at any cost, figure out a way to make it so that I could still do that thing. Hmm. So, for example, I have a lot of difficulty waking up on time in the morning. So I set like six alarms to ring at different intervals until I'm able <laughs> nice. to get up. Yes, I have an know. alarm across the room, so I feel you. But as I shared, that that didn't even work for me today. <laughs> but I, I feel you with the multiple alarms. Yeah. And those things, they're, they're just behavioral modifications, behavioral assistive, you know, devices. And, you know, one of the main things that was a takeaway from this was to do them regardless of whether or not they're like unusual or embarrassing or weird, because the goal is just getting the work done. So, you know, for example, as an artist, when I write my books, I, I can't, it's not that I have discipline in them, you know, some type of way, I cannot just sit there and write, you know, just freely and just be like next chapter, next chapter, and just come up with ideas because that's not the way my brain is designed to produce labor. Hmm. I need to rewrite an outline that is so detailed that might as well be a novella. And then every single time that I need to get a project done, I sit down and I just open that thing. And I'm like, this is what's supposed to be going on in this chapter. And I just write that. And that's my behavioral modification device for my work that allows me to be as successful as I am with this significant handicap because it is a handicap Um, for in regards to like COVID and stuff like that. I've started using my phone kind of the way that people used to use Palm Pilots back 10, 15 years ago, well, like write down everything. Like somebody will be like, Ooh, give me this recommendation. And they expect me to just send it to them later. No, I have to send it to them now or I will never remember, you know? You're like, hold on one second. We're just going to do this. <laughs> yeah. And then like another thing that I've started doing is literally just telling people that I have this issue. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I actually got uh, uh, Invisalign braces <laughs> during quarantine so I could like come out on the other side hotter, bigger, faster, stronger. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and my dentist was like, Oh, you have to wear a retainer every night. And I'm like, sir, that will never happen. I will never remember this. I want you to, <laughs> to physically place a permanent retainer on the back of my teeth. And he's like, but it's annoying. And I'm like, not for me. Cause I, I know I will forget the retainer, yeah. but I will not forget to brush my teeth, which is one of the things that are like, you know, it's, 
everybody forgets different things. Brushing their teeth is not one of mine. I won't forget to do that so I can take care of my reta- my permanent retainer. And he was like, right. well, I feel like you're an adult now. Why won't you remember? And I'm like, okay, I have a memory issue. Like now anything that you say to me comes with the understanding that I already told you that I have a memory issue. Right. So now it's I'm like a you're currently more. forgetting it. So I'm going to remind you. <laughs> exactly. So now before I was just like, I will just perform perform like I do not have these issues until I am no longer able to perform them. And now I have to come groveling to them like, I can't remember anything <laughs> and explain myself afterwards. Now I arrive and I'm like, okay, ma'am, sir, whatever. I will always have this problem. And me overcoming this problem is a service that is requiring 200% effort from me to you. So I need you to understand the day that I arrive that this might be something that there will be a problem. And when I succeed, it is because of monumental effort, not the default. And I feel like yeah. that's working pretty okay for me so far. Yeah, sounds like it. And man, that's huge. Just like even hearing how, like you being an architect and how that helps you perform in that in that regard and like having tools. It's, it's funny, so, cause like my story is wrapped up in depression and OCD and anxiety, all these kind of things. And like, uh, like over the last like two decades of dealing with that, it's this theme of this idea of like almost embracing it. It's like, I always felt like I was fighting and fighting, fighting, but embracing, not in like giving up, but embracing kind of like that. It's like, well, if this happens, like if my, if my day isn't planned out specifically, and then with too much free time, I feel more depressed. So then let's make sure things are planned out. You know, it's like, I'm embracing that reality. And it sounds like you have done that quite well and building tools. It, and it's almost like, then it becomes something you can harness, especially when I, I, and maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, you describing as you at 12, as this young woman, like dreaming of these things when she should have been doing math. But yet again, now you build a living off of creating these worlds for other people. It's like, now you can harness what, what you have. Do you feel like it's like that? Um, yeah, but I definitely think that there is an aspect of it that's kind of out of my control that makes it so that I was able to do that way and feel that way about myself. And that is because I come from a home environment that is supportive and analytical about my struggles. My, my mom is a speech language pathologist. She's spent a lot of time working with people who have, you know, autism or have, you know, speech impediments that are like neurologically, you know, created for them that Mm -hmm. they can certain things to like assist, but will never really quite make go away that they can help, you know? But, um, and so when she started seeing me exhibiting certain behaviors, she was like, you know, let me go and get my child tested. Let me go and see what I can do. Let me give her these things. Let me create this environment where she knows that she can do certain things or that she's loved in the way that she is and all that stuff and whatever. And without having that bedrock to build off of and be able to say, yes, I do these things that are not particularly great. Yes, I will always forget X, Y, Z, but there are certain things about me that are good. And there are certain things about this that can be used. I I don't know if I would have been able to get to that point without that environment. So, you know, if there are any parents listening who might have children who, you know, are exhibiting certain behaviors, creating that can actually change the trajectory of your child's life and can make it so that circumstances where you think that they may continually fail they may be able to with your assistance get to a point where they can be massively successful while using their actual um disability or handicap so for example there are like i think three really big ones for me that are Mm -hmm. common in ADHD. um the first is being able to see 
trees and know that there's a forest. You know, people say like you can't see the forest or the trees. Right. You can give me a circumstance and I'll be able to tell you, you know, what patterns there are and what those patterns mean. So when I was working in office environments, I would look around, see the stuff that's happening and then go to my boss and be like, okay, I know this is going to sound weird, but you should change this, this, and this, and then work productivity will increase. (laughs) They'd be like, why? (laughs) So that's really useful. Will I ever be on time to work? No, but. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you got your strengths. You got your strengths. (laughs) So I can just go to, you know, I can do that sort of stuff or being able to, um, do like hyper intensive focus. So when I was in college, once I wrote a 20 page paper in a day, I was like, I'm not going to do my homework. And then one day I just sat down. I was like, the homework is due. And just did so once you, you know. lock in, you're there. You're, you're exactly. going to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing is being able to take those two skills and combine them to create something that has meaning. So being able to do that really intense hyper-focus and being able to see those patterns um, makes it so that I can do a variety of careers relatively well. I could probably do politics pretty well. I've chosen to do, you know, writing and fiction and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. any career that requires, I could do probably project management. And when you spend time with your child, letting them understand themselves and letting them be able to like analyze what's going on with them from a neutral perspective, not telling them it's super great or telling them it's super bad. Just kind of like, this is what you got. This is what we're dealing with. Hmm. And let them know that there are careers that actually do lean towards the things that are their strengths and buy away from the things that are their weaknesses. That's when you start getting people heading you know, into certain career paths where they're the best mathematician in the whole wide world to try to force them to write an essay it doesn't go anywhere. You're hurting right. them. But like, you know, if they're going to be in astrophysics, now you've got a genius. Now you've got somebody who, you know, is incredible. So I think that that's something that's definitely worth considering. That's huge. That's great advice. I have four boys and, and each personality is so different. And, and that's one thing along the way that we're learning is like how you parent them, like even how we parent them, how we've disciplined them throughout life had to be different because each one responded so differently, but I love what you said from a neutral position. And to me, that's what really popped out. It's like, how do you help them simply embrace those things from a neutral position? I love it. Um, well, the last two questions of the podcast live and create. Uh, so the first one, how would you define right now, uh, living a great life? I am somebody who is a pleasure seeker. I think that finding things that feel good, that, you know, enrich yourself, enrich your community, enrich the people that you um, love and that are around you is probably the best way to passively live a good life. And the best way to actively live a good life is to figure out where you can have the most impact and do your due diligence to try to contribute as much as you can while you're alive. That's awesome. Pleasure and impact. I dig it. And so the last one right now in your life, how would you define creating great things? Ooh, this is a good one. Um, (laughs) I think that as an artist, everything that you create can't be your magnum opus. And I think that, who decides your magnum opus is not actually you. It is the people that are around you consuming your work. Um, everybody has a work that they create that is special to them and that is important to them. It's their favorite thing. 
but so many artists have gone down in history with their most popular work not being there closest to their heart. Mm-hmm. So I think that making sure to create everything that you make with care and with consideration and with a significant amount of love when the work of yours that is chosen to be your best is chosen you won't look upon it with shame that's what i think that's awesome i it it makes me think of the bands that hate playing a certain song because that was their favorite one like radiohead will refuse to play creep sometimes at their concerts but it's like that's the one that brought and it's interesting it it makes me think of your definition of living a great life it's like as an artist we do this because it is pleasurable like i love writing uh but which one is actually going to make the real impact on other people is we don't get to decide that and that's 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 great perspective i love it uh let as as we close up but let everyone know how they can find you and and get connected with your work um you can find me on twitter <laughs> my handle is um at kayla and crumb um just first name last name um i am on no other social media except for facebook which is just my family so <laughs> don't contact me there <laughs> you're like don't go there find it on twitter and and hopefully you'll live tweet the yellow watermelon uh event when you finally take it to a party and just get some reactions because that'd be great <laughs> <laughs> absolutely thank you for listening to the live and create podcast if you like what you heard make sure you subscribe and leave a comment or a review the live and create podcast